0: Hi, I'm Gary Barcalow, author of It's Your Call and founder of the Noble Heart Ministry. I'm so glad that you're listening to this interview I did with John Moorhead titled From the Edge of Glory, A Pilgrim's View of Life. John and I have known each other for the past 13 years or so, occasionally connecting by email or phone. But in January 2015, John emailed me saying this, After a nine-year battle with cancer, and in which I experience a fuller life than ever before, I am now in my last days with very extensive lung involvement and fatigue to the extent that prevents me the level of communication I would like. I want you to know that I have become more and more who I was intended to be and look forward to the end of my beginning now, likely in a matter of weeks. He also mentioned that he wanted to write a book, but that he had run out of time and energy. So a week later, we started a series of recorded conversations about his life, his relationship with God, and his calling. I was deeply moved, encouraged, and inspired at a level I've rarely experienced throughout my life. And I've listened to our conversations intensely and frequently in the editing process over several weeks, and each time I experience a greater depth to his words and his heart. So here is John Moorhead's audio book. John, as we start to explore your life, I think it would be really good to start with the present, the current. And, of course, we know that story, that context is very important uh, for the understanding of what someone's saying or trying to convey. What has this last year been like? What's what's your life like right now for you? Let us know about that.
1: I guess I would start, Gary, by saying that uh, I'm finishing up uh, what I would consider to be, Uh, Without a doubt, the richest year of my life, the uh, rich in the way of depth of living, depth of experience, intimacy with God, of vitality uh, in spite of my physical weakness. And the physical weakness, of course, refers to my nine-year battle with cancer. So to get to the last year here, I'll just say briefly that, that in February of 2006, that's when I was diagnosed with a stage four colon cancer. It had already spread to both of my lungs. Beginning in February, 2006, I began a journey of that included over a year and a half of chemotherapy and seven different surgeries to remove recurrences at one point or another. And it also included two and a half years when I was disease free, where there was no detectable disease that is. But last March, a little over nine months ago, Uh, I was informed that the cancer had come back with a vengeance that had now extensively involved both of my lungs and that I was now basically terminal, that there wasn't any cure possibility anymore from a medical point of view. They offered me chemo back in March, but I had been that route before and I had a deep conviction. Well, I I want to emphasize as I often do that everybody's walk with cancer is different. Uh, But for me, The idea of being alive and yet not living because of the sickness and the apathy associated with the chemotherapy was just not an option. And so I opted out. My wife supported me on Palm Sunday morning. I actually woke up with that firm decision. And looking back, I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. Uh, It was the right decision, and I felt physically well, Really, I didn't begin to 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 experience significant symptoms of of my shortness of breath and cough and so forth until about three months ago. So she and I, uh, we went on a second honeymoon. God just tore down walls. I'll tell you, you get to this stage in your life and nothing unimportant carries very much weight anymore. And I I finally, I think, have had a breakthrough and something I hope for, but I never thought would happen, Gary, and that is that I'm able to love her and support her and validate her emotions because I engage her out of her story and not mine.
0: Say more about that.
1: With regards to inner healing, uh, with regards to laying down the assumptions that we make of others especially those closest to us. There is hope. The journey has been one of about 14 years, Gary. I never thought that I would get to where I am now. I had made progress, and prayer was a large part of that, and counseling and so forth going through. Without going into detail, it consisted largely, uh, I think, of of what a lot of men deal with, and that is particularly painful experiences during my formative years with, with other women. Out of that, experiencing shame, and rather than dealing with the shame, just establishing a, a fundamental anger that was far deeper entrenched than I ever thought it was. And by the grace of God, is it's really hard to explain his timing or you know why it didn't happen earlier, but all I can say is that I was able to let it go. It's like I would say, um, I read in a book the other day where It was was a profound yet simple statement that we really don't know what life can offer until we lay down or let go of what we think life should offer. And that attitude of, of my wife should act this way. She should have these feelings towards me. She should, she should, she should. Rather than just laying that down and looking for her glory, Looking for her brokenness and speaking to it and affirming those things in her that are good and calling her out, just like you know, God wants to call us out. So that's the process. You know, it's, it was a supernatural type of process. And so if you ask me 123 ABC, I, I just sort of was swept along and, uh, and by God's grace and by his counsel. And by the strength he gave me, again, related to the fact that when you're looking at the end of your life, a lot of things that you thought were important uh, just aren't that important. So it wasn't so important to me to make sure I was understood, for example. Um, And that opened up all kinds of beautiful ways in relating to to my wife, in particular, that I had never related before.
0: What is it that has as of late, come to the top of your list of what's really important and, and those things that have either dropped completely off the list or are way down there. Now, obviously, you talked about just loving your wife well. That was one. What, what else?
1: I have to, to tell you that part of my identity is I was, uh, as I was seeking to understand how God made me, what you refer to as the weight of my life, what uniquely is my glory. And thank you, by the way. I've never thanked you face to face. Thank you seems inadequate, but it's all I have. But you started me on a journey that wasn't just desirable, it was critical. And God showed up, and he revealed, among other things, which includes a compassion and a gift for healing, both physical and other types of healing that he gave me. That's part of why I ended up in medicine the way I did. But the enemy pushed back against that, so viciously and it was interesting he didn't push back he pushed back a little bit against the healing part to the point where I was sort of hiding and pretending but where he really got me Gary was I made an agreement that I do not love well and it started back when I was young and just in my teen years dating and the failures there It was a theme that continued through my whole life, and I developed a way of coping with that. Since I don't love well, then what I have to do is X, Y, Z, and I'll compensate in some way or another. And when he revealed to me that that was a lie, and that actually happened during a breakout session after one of your talks, He revealed that that was a lie, and then he showed me, like in a movie, he showed me examples of how, in fact, I do love well, and that is how I'm wired, and I'm sensitive, and I come alive as I engage people where they are. It was so powerful. So to get to the answer of your question, it's such a beautiful thing for me to simply engage people where they are and plug in and just let the love flow, whatever that looks like. Let goodwill come forth in a smile, an affirmative word, a kind act, whatever it is. I love doing it to strangers. I love striking up conversations with strangers and looking to affirm them and bless them. And a long time ago, Dallas Willard said something in one of his talks that really struck me. He says when we interact with someone, whether it's somebody at the grocery store or a friend or a wife, whatever it is, we interact with someone. When we leave, the point is that either then or at some point in the future, the idea is that person would say, thank God for that man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's such a simple thought. But it's so beautiful. And it's such a powerful movement. Yeah, that's where I am now, Gary. That's what's important to me is people. I have found life there uh, in in a way and in and simple interactions that I never thought was, was possible.
0: You had said to me fairly recently that the last year or so of your life has been more focused on your calling, the effect of your life, living it out and offering it. Explain what you meant by that.
1: Yeah, it comes from believing. It was a breakthrough of faith, Gary. It was a breakthrough of faith was what it was. And, but I couldn't see it until after it happened. You know, things just aren't as complicated as they seem. Actions flow from belief. Whatever your beliefs are, they, your actions will show it. Here I am struggling and struggling and asking all kinds of questions and everything like that. And I'm not dealing with the fundamental fact that I don't, I don't believe at the level that I'm capable of. And I need to add that because belief is a relative thing and we grow in our faith, certainly. And I struggle with words here, but, and I don't want to sound, you know, egocentric. I I don't like to talk about myself this way so much, but we're talking about something glorious. It's about God. It's about his business in creating us and, and how we're made. So it's a matter of release. It's a matter of believing Finally, at this critical level, and I can only say this because this has only happened in the past couple of years. Your faith grows, your faith grows, your faith grows. And then finally what happened to me was I got to a point where there was this just release. I stopped minimizing myself. I just stopped pushing back. You know, when God would affirm me, I would like receive it three quarters, (laughs) halfway three quarters, Edit it a little bit, round off the sharp edges so I'm more comfortable with it, you know. Nobody wants to sit down in their glory. It's just too good to be true. And yet it is true. It really is almost too much to take in. But again, I think it's easier for me being on living on the edge right now. I mean, I'm getting ready to pass on. And finally, it will be the end of my beginning, and I will be who I have always been in my fullness. And so I'm close and I can't deny that. And so knowing that then, why should I push back? It just seems kind of childish. You know, I'm being swept along by this great and good God and what waits for me. And why should I push back in some sort of selfish and petulant way? So I think that's that's a blessing, frankly, of having cancer and and being where I am, I don't know whether it's possible to get to that level of belief without getting here. I believe it is because we have great fathers of the faith, and we have people who went before us seem to manifest that. but I only know about me, and that's sort of what happened is that there were just an incremental increase in my faith, and with it came a freedom and a deep, deep joy. And life just began to flow.
0: So, John, if God came to you right now and said, I'm going to take you back 20 years ago, and you get to take everything of what you know, you believe, you've experienced with you back to that time, but you're going to be 20 years younger, you're going to be back in the center of your professional life, how would you live differently?
1: It's a great question. And I would say, Gary, the answer really is clear. The answer is risk more, risk more, especially in relationships. My natural inclination, and it's easy to ascribe it to all kinds of other reasons, so I don't have responsibility for it. One of the ways I hid was to demand clarity. I mean, every I dotted, every T crossed before I stepped out into anything. I wanted all the bases covered. I wanted to know all there was to know. I wanted to understand everything there was to understand. I don't know how, you know, somebody in their 30s, if they're inclined not to risk and if they're hiding and they use that as a rationale, it's real easy to find a lot of support for that. So you can pretty much sit down in that and and never risk. It was only – When I began to risk, and that was uh, when I got into my mid-50s and you and and others gave me vocabulary to talk about what was really going on, that's when I saw risk for the value it was. And that quote that I heard, and I don't know whether it's you or someone else that mentioned, to live without risk is to risk not living. Oh, my goodness. I hated that. I (laughs) I was angry when I heard those words to live without risk is to risk not living because I knew it was true and I didn't want it to be true I just leave me alone you know I want to I want to be safe but it was true and I couldn't deny it and so now I had to deal with it
0: you know we said as we began this conversation that context is very important it explains many things the context we're living in circumstances pressures relationships and those type of things and In the midst of this idea, if you could go back 20 years in the heart of your profession, two things come to mind is, one, as a physician, I would really hope that you're not a huge risk taker. You would like to cover all your bases. You know what's going to happen. You know how to take care of things that they go in different directions. So that reminds me of a story. I have a good friend who is a commercial airline pilot. He said in his initial training, The the company invited the pilots, the captains to bring in their wives and they talked to the wives separately at one point and they said, you need to understand something that the very reason that your husband will make a great captain, a great airline pilot is the very thing that's going to make your life difficult as in a marriage because they are over controllers. Everything has to be calculated. Everything's done by a list. And that's the reason they make a great pilot, but it's going to make your marriage difficult, and we actually applaud this very thing that you may not like. And as he told me this, I realized there's the struggle sometimes of a job that we're in that has many elements of who we are and what we love, but in some ways it can actually work against the developing glory, weightiness, splendor of our life. And in a sense, I I kind of feel like this may have been what was going on with you. Is that right? Is that accurate?
1: That was definitely what was going on. And I think that was great that that happened, that the airline brought the wives into that because certainly it does make it more difficult, no question about it. But the assumption, the implicit assumption is that your husband will only be able to relate to you in one way. And frankly, Gary, I I agreed with that. When I was a physician, I rationalized a lot of bad behavior by saying, I'm a physician and therefore da 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 da. You know, you're going to have to just live with this. It's amazing how people get away with that and accept that. The truth is that, that we're not, well, I guess what I would, what I would mention is Jesus, because Jesus just modeled this ability to relate to the person in front of him in the best possible way, in the most loving way, whatever that looked like. And he wasn't a one-note Johnny. I mean, he wasn't a certain kind of a guy. And so, therefore, every time he met somebody, he handled them the same way. He was exactly the opposite of that. Frankly, it's just easier to become a one-note Johnny and to live like that than it is to to say, okay, I don't have to have my, my relational skills put in a box and uh, used in only one way and be limited in any way. I had a friend uh, that talked to me, and he's a very good friend over many years. And one of the exercises they did in their church was something of a personality inventory in addition to the gifting exercises and all that. And they basically had everybody come to a conclusion about who they were. And he told me about it, and he said, I'm this, and this is the way I am, this is the way I handle things, and everything like that. And I listened to him, and after it was over, I said, please don't misunderstand me, Pete, but I'm really more interested in who I'm not (laughs) and who I want to be. There was this silence like, you know, what are you talking about? (laughs) But it's night and day, and it just seems to me that, you know, we're all in the process of becoming. If Christ lives in us, then we are in the process of becoming something better. Certainly, none of us as fast as we would like it to happen, but the But nevertheless, the process is going on. And so why would that not be a central part of our thinking and talking and challenging and growing and encouraging each other to grow and move in this area and that area, acknowledging, acknowledging the fact that your job draws you hard in a particular direction, which is really good under certain circumstances, but not so good in others.
0: The thought that comes to me is that, Certain jobs, positions, places require something from you in in a major sense. And I think we can get drawn into that because it's applauded, it's needed, it's deemed very valuable, it's what we're rewarded on. But I think what happens is we tend to shut down the rest of our heart, to put it in that language. And so, yeah, I think to say, well, this, this is who I am, this is the way I do life is to basically say, I'm going to shut down a large part of my heart. I just want this part because this is what works. This is what I'm affirmed for, and and I can do that very easily. I have done that. But what I'm hearing is it, it seemed like there was a place in your story where you realized there was an entire region of your heart that had been ignored or shut down, and it was waking up again. And then, like with all of us, we have that choice of, Will I live out of that part of my heart? Will I simply try to shut it back down? But we come to that place of saying, do I want to be completely who I am, bringing to my friendships, my world, all that God has given me to bring to them, or will I just stay in this one small place?
1: I love that, Gary. I love that. Your words are so much better than mine. I, I Really, I couldn't agree more. That is exactly, I think, what is going on. Our hearts are so rich so multifaceted so alive in so many different ways and our hearts are just are just waiting to come forth just waiting to be expressed and poured into the world and others and we settle for so much less and that gets back to what i was talking earlier about we settle into what life should be and we've come to conclusions about that so we never find out all that it can be thank you that that is so well said and for me personally that's exactly what happened because as as i did enter my battle of cancer and laid down my physician identity or what i considered to be much of who i was what came forth was not it was very big and it consisted of a whole lot of creativity which i never ever imagined was in there describe that newly discovered creativity Oh, uh, a perception of beauty. Uh, I got into photography, indulging the beauty of God's creation. And I also wrote poetry. I began to write, and words just flowed. I look at some of the words I wrote when I was going through chemotherapy through some of the darkest times that I had. It's like I can't believe that I wrote those words, but they were in my heart. I never would have dreamed it was part of who I was.
0: So here's something I've been thinking about probably in the last year or so. And that is this idea that I don't think that God is as nervous, as fretting, as concerned about our life and the way we live it as we are. I mean, I think I'm just far more concerned and nervous that I'm not doing the right things, saying the right things. I might be making some mistake that's going to ruin my life and my family and the world. I don't think God's quite as nervous about it. I, I've been trying to live in my life with this, what others have called a divine yes in my life, where I think God puts something on my heart and says, yes, just go for it. Because the truth is, if you go down the wrong direction, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And if you're not listening, I'll speak a little bit louder. Mm-hmm. And if you're still not listening, I'll put a barricade in front of you. I'm just not really worried about your life in the way you are. So just relax a little bit. What are your thoughts about that
1: idea? Well, once again, I couldn't agree more. My story, as so many in, that are my age, uh, World War II generation dad who was very distant, didn't have a relationship with me, and I, I never experienced being the beloved son. It, it was, uh, there was no affection, no affirmation, no nothing. Over the past nine years in particular, when I have gone to my Heavenly Father in prayer, Again, this is such a personal thing. I can only tell you my experience of it. He has provided for me just the perfect, calm, confident, strong, loving father that I always wanted. And he always has a smile on his face. He always has his arm around my shoulder. He is always telling me how proud he is of me for persevering. It's not so much in what he says, but his presence just carries this knowledge. It's not a belief; it just it's an it's an awareness deep, deep in my heart that everything's going to be okay, that things are not out of control, that uh, there aren't any loose ends that he doesn't know about and can't take care of. At his deepest essence, is good and that he is above all greater than anything. As a matter of fact, he asked me in a very personal way, and, and the, the timing of this was interesting because I was at a an event just a couple of months before I was diagnosed with cancer, and at the very beginning of the event, the invocation included, Father, what would you say to each one of us individually? And the words came to me immediately, I am greater. I began an exercise at that event, but then a couple of months later, literally just weeks before I was diagnosed, he wanted me to practice. He wanted me to sit down and fill in the blank, I'm greater than what? And just settling into that, one of the most powerful experiences of my life, and it happened just a few weeks before I was diagnosed with cancer. The question that rises in
0: my heart is, what would you say to those younger than you Earlier in the journey, what would you say to them that you would say, this is essential? This one thing you need to remember, you need to believe in, you need to walk out, you need to hold
1: on to. But what would those few things be? One of the things, and I'm sure there's more than one if I would think about it for a while, But the thing that jumps up to the front, Gary, particularly, I think I'm sensitive to it because it's more of an issue now than it was when I was in my 30s. But it it was definitely an issue back then. and It always has been. And the issue is this. We must not allow our feelings to define what is true. We live in a culture that is actually driven, I think, like never before. Your feelings do define what is true. And so everybody's walking around with their own truth, and, and that's where we've lost critical thinking, you know, is that people allow their basis of knowledge to be developed by emotions. I loved Alice Willard, and he said something in one of his last talks that he gave. He said, there are important issues that need to be talked about. For example, in your world, who gets to say what knowledge is? So let me ask
0: you, how do you, and I'm going back to your earlier conversations that when I asked you um, about this creativity that is opening up, that's always been there, but's opening up, becoming free, how do you deal with this idea of having an open, alive, fully engaged heart, but also not living out of feelings? Now, I do think those are two different things, but I, I would love to hear. How do you do that? Because I think so many people, as we talk about living from the heart with God, confuse that with being an emotional person and living right. out of your emotional self.
1: How would you describe that? That's a great question. I think that the key point, Gary, is that emotions are not to be resisted. Emotions happen, and they're to be welcomed. And actually, and a lot of times they open doors to a deeper understanding of your heart, a need for healing, unfinished business, unconfessed sin, all kinds of things, if you're willing to engage them. And it's important to engage them and not shut them down. The key point is that you don't allow them to define what is true. To get back to my relationship with my wife, which is just amazing at this point, what we're able to do is, and I guess the best thing I can do is give you an example. When my wife, for any reason, says, I feel left out, I feel like you don't value me, I feel like you don't care what I think, you're just doing your own thing, I feel like you never seek my counsel because it doesn't carry any weight, for the first time in my life I can um, talk to her and say, your feelings are valid, I know your story. And it makes perfect sense to me that you would feel that way based upon what's just happened here. And I am sorry because I know how hard it is for you to experience that. I can do that rather than jumping to defend myself and saying, well, that's not true. I'm always trying to call you in. Let me tell you about this and this and this. And what about this? You know, you get into arguing. But but what that does is, without even thinking about it, you have assumed that her feelings dictate what is true, and so now you have to defend what is true. That's not the issue at all. The issue is just simply allowing the feelings and understanding that they're valid and even affirming them. And what is true comes later, and most of the time now, if I react to my wife like that and give her space, she can see clearly. She can see what's true. And she's now free to say, You know that what my feelings didn't represent what's true. You do care about what I think. I know that at the deepest level of my heart, I know that you care what I think. And the same thing goes in reverse. She says something or acts a certain way, and I tell her how I'm feeling. And I usually end up to get her oriented. I say, please understand this doesn't have anything to do with you. I'm talking about how I feel and it's based on my story, not yours. So there is a richness in being able to relate like that. But what's even better is that strongholds are broken. You know, these patterns of thinking and feeling that get us into our scripts, they're just blown up. They carry no power anymore. Oh, my. I, I wish with all my heart that I had been able to relate to people like this years ago. But I'm thankful that, that we can do it now.
0: John, let me ask you, as you look back on your life, What would you say were those significant formation moments, those decisive moments, those turning points in your
1: life that formed you into the man you became? Yeah, you know, everybody's got them. We tend to minimize them, at least I did, for a very long time. And it's only when we make a decision, a conscious decision, to be intentional about looking behind what we do and why we seem to be the way we are that we discover these uh, the best word is opportunities. we all have those really significant points in our life where uh, events happen and we are shaped by them in an unusually powerful way as compared to life in general. I think it's a practice of our culture to in the way of men to minimize the uh, the significance of those uh, times. I certainly did. It was only when I was challenged to look back that. I saw the significance of them, and in doing so, understood more about why I was the way I was and why I had knee-jerk responses to certain situations over a period of the last 15 years or so through counseling and through healing prayer, actually. The power of those has just pretty much melted away to the point where I'm so free to act unencumbered and to live free, and I just I praise God for that when I was about five years old. My dad was distant, World War II type guy. We didn't have a relationship. I was wired from the time I was very little to be a sensitive little guy. And my dad came from a family where one size of discipline fit all. And there was no individualization. You didn't really get to know your kid. You just processed them, and you did the same thing to every kid regardless of how sensitive they were or how rebellious or whatever. So for whatever reason, I really can't tell you why, but I got into a thing no older than seven. I um, started stealing money off of my dad's dresser. I really didn't think it was that wrong. I didn't think it was that big a deal, but I love to steal five, $10 bills and then to go through a toy catalog and imagine what I could buy. I had no intention of buying anything. It was the idea of I remember going through a catalog and singing and being really happy about how I could get this or I could get that, and it's just a fantasy. My dad, by deduction, concluded that finally I was the one, and my my uh, mom actually confronted me about whether I was the I had been doing that or not, and I confessed to her. Yes, my mom was the counterpart to my very uh, non-relational dad. My mom was very compassionate very sensitive, very relational to me. She did a lot of damage control between my dad and me over the years. I was terrified of my father, absolutely terrified of him. He would give me a look, and I would fall apart crying. My mom told me that she told him about it and that there was a possibility that I was going to be getting a spanking or he would have something to do with discipline when he got home. When he walked in the front door, I ran upstairs and I hid under my bed, and I have never been more terrified. Under that bed, this little boy was uh, saying to himself over and over again, something awful is going to happen, something awful is going to happen, something terrible is going to happen. I can't find words to describe the terror that I felt as a young boy and in fear of the unknown of this monster father who could literally pick me up and tear me apart if he wanted to. He never came upstairs. My mom talked him out of the the physical discipline, describing to him how my spirit was also broken. She didn't use those words, but. And she coaxed me out from under the bed and she held me in a rocking chair, and I just cried and cried and cried and said how sorry I was. The reason I mention that is even as a little boy, I came out from under that bed living with the agreement which I had made that something terrible was going to happen. Now I dodged that spanking. But I was, after that episode, I was more afraid of my father than ever. And that continued to be the case until I got to be as big as he was physically, I guess. But I lived in terror and in fear. It was uh, actually, uh, Gary, at at an event that that you were at, you came out and did prayer ministry. And and you actually were with me uh, when I was convicted about that memory. And you were kneeling next to me. And Jesus was just doing a work. It was so cool because after it was over, you said, I just sort of was with you and watching what was going on. Because it really was, Jesus wanted to take me back there, and he wanted me to see him in the room, and he wanted me to see his heart for me. The joy and the relief and the uh, the release, too, that, that came from that uh, time of prayer was complete. That memory lost its power. I moved in a huge direction away from the idea that, You know, just waiting for something terrible to happen.
0: And how was that fear that lodged in your heart, how was that affecting your life, your behavior, your relationships,
1: your worth, anything and everything? Don't assume anything. Guard all your bases. Take not just control of your life, but anticipate every single possible thing that could go wrong and deal with it before it does. Hmm. And if if that sounds neurotic, uh, that's indeed what it is. (laughs) So did you become a very cautious, risk-adverse kind of a guy? It was an interesting combination because in day-to-day life in general, that's exactly what I was. I played it safe in relationships, in making decisions about the safety of travel or doing whatever it was. It was always be careful, be careful, be careful. But it was very interesting because in my role as a physician in the intensive care unit, in a sense, it was a good thing. I mean, if you're a very critically ill patient in the intensive care unit, you want a doctor thinking like that. Okay, list everything that could go wrong and deal with it ahead of time, right? I got a lot of positive feedback for that, but I was a real jerk because I insisted that everybody else have that same attitude. And when mistakes were made, there was no quarter. I routinely made nurses cry in the ICU. Because they should have anticipated this or that or been ahead of it. Exactly. Yeah. It had a dramatic effect.
0: So you came to this moment. This was probably
1: 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this time at the retreat where I was with you. Actually, let me think for a minute. I'll give you the date. I think it was uh, 2007. So seven, eight years ago.
0: So how did you notice the thing changed for you after that, and you know
1: most changes are incremental exactly. it was incremental, but the difference was that it was a recognition Gary. we go through life and we don't see things a certain way, and then he gives us eyes to see things a certain way and It's not that all of a sudden we don't do certain things or we don't have attitudes in the moment, but the difference is in a relatively short period of time ranging from maybe a couple of minutes to a day, you see differently. You see, that wasn't right. That's not good. I've been there before. I don't want to live like that anymore. And that's the evidence of change, and that's the evidence of healing. It's so precious because we need to see that and to say it to ourselves to put the next rock under our foot to take the next step up. There needs to be something substantial there. And as you've talked about before, the importance of looking back in your journals, for example, to see those moments and to see the progress is so critical.
0: This situation with your dad, and as you said, even though you weren't punished,
1: the fear still grew. What was another moment that came after that at some point? Age 14, I had a crush on a girl and she actually asked me to take her to a party, which was in a garage in a neighborhood house. It was in walking distance. So I was really delighted, and it was really the first quote-unquote date, I think, that I ever had. So we went to this party together, and we got there, and uh, she met up with another guy, hung out with him for the evening, and left with him. She used me to get to the party to meet him, as it was explained to me later by one of her friends. I walked home alone, and everybody knew that I walked home alone. I realized it, I would say maybe 15 years ago, but not the depth of it, until even two years ago. And, and what I mean by that is that there was a component that I left out. As I look back on that, which was actually the first of a number of sentinel events that were all directed into the same wound. It was a an attitude of contempt from members of the opposite sex, not just a no or a rejection, but the message that you don't matter. You have no significance. You're a joke.
0: When you say receiving, were you receiving that message or were
1: you perceiving that message? When you're 14 years old, perception is reality. So I I wouldn't have used those words. I didn't see two things. For all of my life, I used the word rejection and I used my response as anger. But I didn't look deeper. And when I looked deeper, the attitude towards me was actually contempt. And my response back was shame. I developed anger out of the shame because the shame was too painful for me to acknowledge and deal with. But once I went back and dealt with the shame, then I realized that I actually had developed a contempt right back at the source of the contempt for me. It's just stunning to see how precisely the arrows were directed in the exact same place, one event after another, after another, after another, any one of which is devastating.
0: As a 14-year-old, maybe even an older boy now looking back at that time, what were you imagining was the reason they held contempt for you? Because we usually have to just say, this certain way is the way I am, and that's why there's contempt held for me. No one wants to be with me or whatever. Did your young heart form
1: some kind of an idea about that? Yeah. Again, I didn't get clarity until much later, but like so many guys do, I took my question you know, am I the real deal? Do I have what it takes? Am I a man? My dad didn't answer the question. So I took it to the woman with desperation, but the depth of my commitment to having a woman validate me was total and it drove me. But the way it drove me was you got to play this really, really carefully. You know, you got to pick a woman that in no way is going to reject you. And at the first sign, you got to run and you can't invest yourself. Praise God I'm on the other side of that, but oh my goodness, that was such a huge burden for most of my life.
0: Hmm. It played out well in work for you and for the sake of work. I'm guessing it didn't play out real well in marriage or friendship,
1: did it? No. All my friendships were pure superficiality and appearance. And It's easy to find friends, especially male friends, that will do that with you. and You pose and you pretend that that you have a relationship, which you don't at all, but you go through the motions in my marriage. Oh, it was, it was very, very simple. My attitude was peace at any cost. There will be no failure here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We didn't have any rich interactions. My wife and I, right now we see the richness of our differences and we celebrate those. But for most of our marriage, there was no opportunity for either one of us to grow in that. She would continually push the envelope and occasionally we'd have blow ups, but I, I couldn't allow them to go on. And I pretty much just, I was one of those guys for the sake of my marriage. And, and I heard these words from the front of a, of an event I went to. Some of you guys live in a, in a marriage where it's peace at any cost. And it may be time for you to go back home and rock the boat. When those words were spoken I knew they were true, and I hated that they were true. And so I I made a commitment, and at that event also I heard from God, and, and I was able to go home and begin the process of rocking the boat. And it was the best thing that ever happened in our marriage. It made things a whole lot more difficult initially, but it was the beginning of something much, much better.